0: Hello and welcome to the Arbitration Station!
1: Is that the main issue of ISDS today?
0: So we cannot invite y'all to the next episode. You're the native speaker. It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either pregnant <laughs> or you're not.
1: Did you say Gaillard?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D. I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually.
1: <laughs> it's a question I'm putting up there. <laughs>
0: Hello and welcome to The Arbitration Station. My name is Juhul Dahlqvist. And I'm Brian Kodek.
1: And I'm Sadio Hati.
0: And the three of us are your co-host for another episode of The Arbitration Station podcast covering both commercial and investment arbitration. 66% serious substance and 33% general ponderings and musings of the arbitration world and 1% flights amid coronavirus. Because you are the 1%. <laughs>
2: Does
1: that. <laughs> I would say 0.001%. You know? I know.
2: I told someone the other day that you were flying and they were like, huh?
1: <laughs> we should do a webinar just on that topic. Yeah. So you're alive.
0: I am. And where in the world am I, Joel? Well, I am <laughs> in in London together with the two of you, or kind of. I assume you're in Cambridge, Sadia.
1: I am still. Yeah, yeah, in Cambridge. But we're in the UK, we're getting close.
0: Yes, and
2: I am in the northeast of London, so Joel, we're basically in different countries right now, since you're
0: southwest. Yes, okay, good point. I might as well be in New York, <laughs> but we're in the same time zone. I know, finally. But you're not yes. jet lagged, you said. No, not terribly. Well, I, I shouldn't say too much, maybe it'll hit, uh, but it was <laughs> a, an incredibly comfortable flight. Like, it was basically like a private jet because did they well, like
2: take care of you were they like welcome yeah
0: yeah yeah there were basically one steward or stewardess per passenger
3: oh basically. wow it's
0: glamorous that's like at yeah.
2: the business class
0: yes exactly i was just flying super coach but there were like 35 passengers in a in a boeing with a capacity of like 300 so did that's they split
2: you up for balance purposes?
0: No, but well, we did that on our own anyway. Okay. Like when we sat down, we realized we were a bit close to people, and then everyone just immediately spread out. And the people working there just sanctioned that behavior, so we were spread out. I I took a photo. There's like six rows back, six rows in front of us. Nothing. It's completely empty.
2: Where was anyone in like a weird suit and like spray?
0: Yeah, there were a few people uh, at the airport in New York. There, were, there was a woman walking around with, like, homemade hazmat suit with, like, ski goggles and a oh, gas no. mask, basically.
1: Did she pee on her seat? Or did she not, what? like... Yeah. <laughs> sorry, uh-huh. I don't want to know were the...
0: <laughs> like have a have a colostomy bag. <laughs> yeah, exactly it, like it actually it felt it felt so safe. Uh, it was probably better than like being in a city or something because it was just a good, good distance and everyone were we were all observing social protocols. But and the airports like both, and we flew from Newark and and landed at Heathrow. So empty and like quick, no lines, no nothing. It was like I, I really hope this is even after this terrible virus. I hope that like, global warming will finally do its thing and kill off ninety percent of the flights, so we can only fly like this. It's so nice.
2: I, I, I mean, I honestly think it is. These these airlines are really not
0: doing well. No problem. I mean, there's no way in hell they could turn a profit off of this flight. No. Mm-hmm. I have a pilot friend for
2: Virgin America or Virgin Atlantic, and he does the long haul flights. And he's grounded and furloughed, and it's not looking not looking good.
3: Mm. And
2: and as a pilot, you think like I'm doing this skill set that will never go out of style. I will have a job for the rest of my life, and this is the one time.
1: Where <laughs> this is the one time where they're not, not going to work.
2: Um, but have you guys stayed connected at all through these? Uh, the past two weeks in the arbitration world community.
1: Yeah, there's been tons going on, right? It's like (laughs) nonstop news, uh, whether in investment arbitration or general arbitration. Don't you guys agree?
2: Yeah, a lot's coming out because everyone's bored and they're writing their awards. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) I think there's some truth to that, actually.
1: (laughs) That's true. That's and the states,
0: true. the states are also like acting now, doing things. All the not all the a, a majority of the EU member states like, finally agreed in their like plur- plurilateral treaty to terminate their intra-EU investment treaties, which I suspect a lot of tribunals are now grappling with. Like, what is what is the consequence of this? Yeah, threat? what does that
1: mean exactly? And that oh, was a year and a half ago, right after the declaration that they issued that they were going to terminate.
0: There yeah, and now it's it's the treaties out there. I, it's not enforced yet though, because I think they had to ratify it and and go through the whole mechanism as provided for in the treaty, but that's probably only a matter of time because the twenty three states, I think there are have agreed. right. It says
2: that the agreement <clears throat> is subject to ratification, approval and acceptance and entered into force thirty calendar days after the date on which the Secretary General, the Council of the EU receives the second instrument of ratification
0: approval and acceptance. Probably only a matter of time. Yeah. They all want to be good member states now and rush their ratification instruments. All right. But it does not apply to the ECT, which is important to keep in mind. only applies mm-hmm. to EU BITs. And five EU states, or four EU states, and the United Kingdom, I guess is the appropriate way of putting it now, <laughs> did, 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 did not sign it. So that includes Sweden, our home country, Brian, and uh, Finland, Austria, and what's, what's the fourth one? Hungary. Uh, no, Hungary signed. Uh, is
2: it a s- no? Estonia signed? Yeah. Uh, well,
0: stay tuned. Yeah, exactly. Not not crucial, I guess. And if you, <laughs> if you have a case involving a state that has not signed the declaration, you probably know about it at this point. <laughs>
2: right. Yeah,
1: exactly. But they, even if they have signed, there's so many outstanding questions, right? So
2: what does it all we'll mean? See. Is there a sunset?
1: Yeah, Exactly. Just like there's a
2: sunset on me right now. <laughs> Sadia, <laughs> yeah. do you, uh, did any news strike you during this time?
1: I was um, So last time we talked about virtual hearings, right, during the pandemic, and I thought it was interesting. I just saw there was a, I mean, I just saw it, it was on May 1st that uh, there was a news uh, in IA Reporter that an unseful tribunal declined to suspend proceedings due to COVID-19. So I thought that was interesting because I know there's a lot of Procedural orders right now are a lot of requests made to suspend or postpone hearings because of COVID nineteen, and it has gone both ways. Really, I've seen it gone different ways. So that was an interesting one. It was a, it was a case against uh, the state of Bolivia, um, and the state requested to suspend the proceedings and grounds of COVID nineteen. Of course, I think every in every single case it's more the defendant or respondents that are requesting, um, to postpone, uh, proceedings. Um, and given the uncertainty, I mean, really there's no, you know, you can't really postpone to a later date. There's no clarity as right. to when, uh, you could have, um, a physical hearing. Right. I mean, even in the UK, when it, we're talking about, um, going back slowly, uh, but there's discussion about having a quarantine against people who come into, you know, that people fly in into the uk what does that mean for people in a hearing so you were going to have a hearing here in london and you're going to fly people from all over the world and they have to fly in like 15 days before <laughs> right and it's just it Never raises so happen. many questions so yeah it's so complicated um, I
2: I could see maybe postpone or suspending proceedings for something a bit more pragmatic, like a like a logistical issue, for example, like if document production with the state, if they need access to archives or access to their servers that they don't have access to remotely, there could mm-hmm. be. Well, I guess you would just delay production, but not necessarily the proceedings. Uh, maybe there's more logistical considerations, but a general
0: just for a hearing or just a general postponement, I think, is a bit more difficult to justify, especially when yeah. it's like in the future undefined infinity future with <laughs> arbi- arbitrators and counsel who are likely going to be super, super busy starting, like whenever, whenever this thing starts to ease up a little bit, the yeah. procedural calendars are going to be tight for for busy arbitrators and, and lawyers.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think people's calendars are already super busy, in fact. Uh, a lot of those ha- hearings are happen- happening virtually. People are getting organized to have uh, virtual hearings. Um so yeah, so we'll we'll see how it goes. But interest I, I thought it was interesting because in this case Bolivia pleaded force majeure uh <laughs> specifically um to suspend or postpone the proceedings. Um so that was saying that it was it said that the defense, the filing by a certain date was materially impossible. Mm. Um so yeah, that's just interesting, interesting arguments. Yep.
2: And you found that on IA reporter.
1: Yes, I found that on iReporter along with other interesting news.
0: Yeah, you can also read about the plurilateral EU treaty thingy on iReporter. Was that a cue for me, Brian, to read our mm-hmm. pl- plug for this excellent service? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is on video, so I can't like signal you. <laughs> well, it's nice to have you guys on video, by the way. Yes. Why, I don't know why we always... We don't always do this. Anywho, iReporter is an online service focused on international investment law uh, with a team of expert analysts, which offer up-to-the-minute coverage of new arbitrations, recent decisions, and notable policy developments. Last year, iReporter launched a new content feature, a series of case profiles on more than 1,300 investor state arbitrations, which at this point might even be... 1350 investor state arbitration, <laughs> including easily searchable data on arbitrators, counsel, and key developments in each case. So to find out why the world's leading law firms, universities, and government agencies subscribe to IA Reporter, visit iareporter.com. They also wrote about what I think will be the first segment of today. We haven't even discussed the order, but this is the smallest, lightest segment, so I think it makes sense to start with it, which, which is the... Uh, draft Code of Conduct for Arbitrators that was issued um, a few weeks ago by the exit secretariat and the unctral secretariat together, uh, which is an interesting document uh, meant to be a flexible injection of uh, thoughts and soft law into both the unctral working group reforms and the reforms of the exit rules. So the two secretaries got together and did this. And I'm going to put a few of those provisions in this draft code of conduct on the table for us to discuss.
2: Great. I actually, I purposely have not read through it, so I'm
0: excited to have spontaneous reactions. you're know, you so prepared <laughs> that you have prepared by, <laughs> by not preparing. Exactly, exactly. you have you're to welcome. stay
1: away from reading <laughs> these news. Everyone has been talking about it, so it's been difficult to stay away from the news. Yeah,
2: and Salim, um, you'll take the yeah. Second
1: I'll be talking about not um, investment-related case, uh, but a more a development in the commercial arbitration world where um, in this jurisdiction in the UK, we've been talking a lot about in the past couple of days, which is the law applicable to the arbitration agreement, which I think is relevant, um, or generally speaking, in, in arbitration. I think people talk a lot about uh, the governing law, et cetera, the seat of arbitration, but this, this one is interesting, and we d- we briefly touched upon it previously when talking about the quit food decision but this is an interesting development a new new case so i'm going to be speaking about that one
2: great and then we'll round it out uh, with a our happy fun time topic which will be about how to become an arbitrator not that either of us even know that but uh generally the um kind of tracks that one can follow in order to be appointed of arbit- as arbitrator if
0: you so choose to pursue that route in this career Um, We have one-third investment arbitration, one-third commercial arbitration, and one-third general ponderings and musings and happy fun time. (laughs) Perfect on-rand. Great. All right. Well, without further ado, let's kick it off. So I said that we were going to talk about the draft code of conduct for arbitrators. That's not correct, strictly speaking, because this document is titled draft code of conduct for adjudicators in investor state dispute settlement. That distinction actually is important, which we will get back to. But just keep in mind, we're talking about adjudicators, not arbitrators. And the background, as I kind of hinted at during our intro, is that from my perspective, at least, the, the driving force here is the work, working group three and Onsitral, where a draft code of conduct has been discussed for a long time. And the Onsitral secretariat decided to draft one, and they did so together with ICSID, which is, of course, the largest institution when it comes to investment treaty arbitration, and the two secretariats have worked together with this. So it's not a state thing which you may think, reading it, um, in fact, and now I'm reading from IA Reporter, <laughs> our sponsor. <laughs> uh, because my uh, a lot of people, probably even including IA Reporter, thought that this may have been something that the secretaries did together with the states, either within the scope of exit reforms or within the scope of central reforms. But Ixel and Ancetral have confirmed to I reported that the code was drafted by the secretariats and not by delegations. However, the two institutions noted that comments of delegations made to date were considered in this drafting and further comments will certainly be considered as discussion on the document proceed. So this is a work in progress, very much, and it's open for comments. So you can easily find it through either the Oncitral web page or the Exit webpage, or if you're an IU Reporter subscriber, you can go to IU Reporter and download it from there, and then you can send your comments to the institutions. Um, and be part of soft law, arbitration soft law in the making. Okay, I said they call this the code of conduct for adjudicators and not arbitrators. And that is because it is uh, intended to work not only for arbitrators, but also, for example, for uh, whatever comes out of the on trial Working Group process. Um, And also, you know, ad hoc um, appeals body, basically whoever is involved in making decisions in arbitration, which doesn't necessarily have to be uh, an arbitrator. It says actually in the definitions, adjudicators means arbitrators, members of international ad hoc annulment or appeal committees and judges on a permanent mechanism for the settlement of investor state disputes. It also says that the code covers assistance, which means persons working under the direction and control of the adjudicators not secretariat people but people like me who work for arbitrators who are also covered by this draft code of conduct so it's not just the actual appointed arbitrators but also their assistants or secretaries okay in terms of substance moving on i know this this is helpful with the video i know you were just like you can see it in your eyes. You
3: don't there, don't know.
0: Just,
1: just a quick question, though, uh, on this, jewel Is there a distinction made between an assistant and a secretary, and how do you find out if you have assistance? Because you don't really have to. Dis- do you have to disclose that? Actually, I don't know.
0: Um, that's a good arbitrate. point. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think now it's fair to say that it's best practice, at least, that you do so. Uh, you need party consent to have mm-hmm. an assistant working. Okay. Uh, I suspect it doesn't always happen, but that is the uh, the idea, at least. But that's not in the code of conduct, then. Uh, I don't think so. No. So uh, that let would me be read. the so, comment, I think. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. a good point. Actually, there's a there's a comment here in the there's a commentary to the the code that the secretaries have, have um, added to the code, and it reads blah blah blah. Uh, The code would apply not only to adjudicators, but also to those who are appointed by the adjudicators to assist them. So I guess maybe by adding appointed as a requirement, you kind of assume that they have been appointed officially. Right. Mm -hmm. Assistance would include research and legal assistance over whom the adjudicators have direct control, such as associates in an arbitrator's law firm or clerks in relation to judges on a permanent body. Uh, wow. However, blah, 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 yeah, and then also it's made clear that it does not include members of arbitral institutions, uh, etc. Okay. Very good question though. Moving to the substance, the the code or the draft code, to be extra clear, uh, contains both things that we would have expected. Adjudicators shall be independent and impartial, etc. etc. We, we know what to expect here but also some things that are more surprising, I think. And those are the ones I think we should talk about. There are 12 provisions in this draft code and they are also kind of open-ended. Uh, they contain a lot of language within brackets, etc. So the discussion is likely to continue. Uh, so this is not like the final say, this is just like a, an attempt to try to codify some of the discussion so far while also highlighting where more discussion is needed. But I thought we should put some of these provisions on the table for discussion. Uh, one such touches upon things we have talked about on this podcast in various iterations, and that is double heading,
3: mm. or,
0: or as the draft code calls it, limit on multiple roles. Less sexy than double heading, but yeah. the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's in Article 6 of the draft code, it's likely to be subject to discussion. I'm now stalling while I scroll down to Article 6. Adjudicators shall, within brackets, refrain from acting slash disclose that they act, and bracket, as counsel, expert, witness, judge, agent, or in any other relevant role at the same time as they are, within bracket, within X years of, and bracket, acting on matters that involve the same parties, Within brackets, the same facts and/or the same treaty. End bracket. So this is not easy to listen to. Uh, you should probably try to read it if you're super interested yourself. Uh, the point here is that the Article Six of this draft code does not set down whether double heading should be banned or just disclosed. That's still something that has to be talked about more. Because it says that our adjudicators shall refrain from acting or disclose that they act in all these other various capacities. So it 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 stops before determining whether or not double heading as such should be uh, banned or just disclosed. And there are of course pros and cons with both here. And one interesting aspect I think is pointed out in the commentary here, which I hadn't considered, but Ixit obviously has thought about, and that is that if uh, Double heading, as defined here, were to be banned entirely. Many, if not most, arbitrators on the ICSID roster would be ruled out automatically. Meaning that ICSID could no longer appoint arbitrators without, like, completely revamping the whole roster by getting the states to appoint new people. Because most people appointed by states to the rosters are already involved as arbitrators or counsel or experts or other things in other pending cases. Then we also have another open issue, which is uh, the sort of the test, what kind of things should be either banned or disclosed. Uh, we have the within X years, not defined. So I said, like, if you've ever done anything related to, or should it, uh, a, an absolute number of years be set as a requirement for either banning you or forcing you to disclose, not defined. And then we have the test matters that involve the same parties, the same facts, and or the same treaty. And this does not really, I think, address the overarching question of uh, issue conflicts. So you you may have, you know, someone who said something in some capacity about FET or umbrella clauses or whatever. Um, So... Even if the treaty and the facts are different in case number two, there might still be a feeling that the double heading has somehow created a problem, because the same standards come up in so many different iterations.
1: You mean as an academic, if you've addressed this before, or in writings?
0: Yeah, or in, yeah, yeah, as as mm-hmm. counsel, as counsel, expert witness, judge, agent. Yeah, or anything of else. course, yeah.
1: Yeah, because sometimes they're legal experts too, right, on specific questions, and then the yes. same people can be arbitrators, right? Exactly,
0: exactly. And mm-hmm. this is a good point. It kind of brings us to the next substantive thing I want to talk about, which is the disclosure obligations uh, contained in Article Five. And I think this is the the thing that has attracted the most interest in the in the community. And that is, so what what kind of information that may give rise to conflicts of interest must presumptive adjudicators disclose? And this is impressive in scope, uh, although query how practical this is. And I've both heard and read some blowback from from arbitrator insiders here. Um, Article 5 says that adjudicators shall avoid direct or indirect conflict of interest, and they shall disclose anything that might present a problem. But then in Article 5.2, we have some more specificity. What is it that presumptive arbitrators must disclose? Uh, And it shall include the following. And then we have a long list. Any (laughs) any professional business and other significant relationship within the past five years, with five years being within brackets, with the parties, including subsidiaries, parent companies or agencies, the party's counsel, any present or past adjudicators or experts in the proceeding, any third party with a direct interest in the outcome of the proceeding. And then we also have any direct or indirect financial interest in the proceeding. And then we have two sub-brackets here that I think are interesting. All ISDS and other international arbitration cases, within brackets, in which the candidate or adjudicator has been or is currently involved as counsel, arbitrator, annulment committee member, expert, conciliator, or mediator, and a list of all publications by the adjudicator or candidate and the relevant public speeches.
1: Oh, that's going to (laughs) be a tough one. Public speeches oh dear
0: yeah i i am not even i was gonna say 30 years old i am 30 years old i i don't think i could i probably could if i sat down for a long time but to like account for anything you basically said anything in public that is arbitration related i cannot imagine how hard that must be for someone in their 60s or 70s who's made a career out of this
2: yeah i i mean and then what's the, i mean it's in a lot of like senior arbitrators' cvs they have like a list of speaking engagements but i mean Have you spoken in a webinar? Is that to be included?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and also, like, now a lot of things are recorded, you know, on YouTube, etc. Or just you can find them online. But a lot of the talks before were not recorded. So, you know, if there's no transcript, there's no way of knowing what they've said. So you have to just make a declaration as to, you know, you were... Um, at that conference this is what you said like I don't even remember what I said in a conference like two or three months ago if I don't look at my (laughs) notes again you know it's it's
3: crazy but
0: I think this might be like the reason too I I might be reading too much into this but now you sort of remove the onus from the appointing party to the presumptive arbitrator or adjudicator Mm -hmm. here to like actually remember and disclose what they may have done and said so it's not up to the party to do all the research and try to figure out like what, right, the, exactly. what the arbitrator expressed in 1999 at some ICA congress but it's actually up to the arbitrator to keep track of this mm-hmm. uh, w- which might be a sh- shock to people who have worked in the present system where that has not been the case but long term I guess maybe it makes sense well, then and uh, you're going to
1: be really careful now in accepting those speaking engagements. It's going to have a deterrent effect, probably. I probably, think so. or
0: or at least you should keep better track of them.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, it already I mean, it already has a deterrent effect and you see a lot of conferences where people are completely wishy-washy about taking a certain position on mm-hmm. a s- specific type of law because they're worried that it's going to be held against them. And I mean, something that comes to mind, and maybe you address this later, is really like the the purpose of this because you've seen it raised as an issue in arbitrations, when you try to disqualify the impartiality, and independence of an expert, or, or for the for a tribunal member, and it doesn't necessarily hold a lot of water if someone spoke about it
0: five years ago. That, oh, no, it's really. increasingly. I don't think any issue conflict has been upheld on background. We've had issue conflicts on like ac- actual arbitrations right. where you've written a dissenting opinion or an award. Right. In another case, that is public, but like academic speaking is such a hard thing to to win on if you try to challenge an arbitrator,
2: right? Okay. And so, is the purpose of this code of conduct to kind of signify what is important as far as just you know the impartiality and independence of an arbitrator? That like because it is in this code of conduct, therefore it is important to consider when just, I mean, it's, it kind of raises a standard, supplants the IBA guidelines and basically said, there's much more we need to consider. And there's not even a gradient of what's important, really.
1: There, it's true that it hasn't been upheld, that there, there have been a lot of challenges on this already, right? Um, so the, it's, people, you know, tend to use that as a, You know, as an excuse, sometimes to just challenge uh, a potential arbitrator, and I think that's (laughs) this has to stop (laughs) more than you (laughs) know deterring people from sitting as arbitrators just because they spoke in 20 years ago or even 10 days ago on a topic, but on a but I think just general
0: that is also part of the point. I think Uh, Chiara Giorgetti, who is like the current Exit Scholar in Residence, wrote a blog post. Uh, explaining some of this, uh, the reasoning behind the code of conduct, because she was one of, or maybe the, the key drafter, I don't know exactly what the working group looked like, but she wrote in this blog post that uh, like this due to disclosure is intended to give the parties more knowledge uh, about the potential arbitrators' work, and that the point is that they will... Uh, avoid repeat appointments, and they will avoid issue conflicts because the more they know about the arbitrators, sort of like between the lines, if you have an old arbitrator who is very experienced and has been repeated repeatedly appointed by similar parties and said a lot of things, if you get all the info on the table, you might be more inclined to appoint someone else mm-hmm. with with less baggage, basically. And that is um, a good thing from the perspective of the the code drafters. So like try to just get as much intel as possible. Uh, forced upon the arbitrators to disclose, and then maybe we will see some new people entering the business. Or
1: you would appoint that person specifically because he said something that
0: is. Uh, which also brings us to another substantive thing, which I think is really interesting. And here I'm really interested in your take, and that is the the pre-appointment interviews, which is something that is Mm -hmm. specifically regulated in the code too. And here it says that the interviews, so this is where you as a party are considering an arbitrator. You typically interview that arbitrator to try to get an idea of of, uh, if, if it's a good appointee or not. And it says in the code that the interviews should be limited to discussion concerning availability of the adjudicator and absence of conflict. And it expressly says that they should not deal with any issues pertaining to jurisdictional, procedural, or substantive matters potentially arising in the proceedings. And there's another thing within bracket here that if you do have interviews, that must be disclosed to all parties when the arbitrator is appointed. And this, I think, is a departure from current practice, in my experience, which is limited It says conflict only, right? It just says
2: existence of conflict? Yeah. Issue conflict? I mean, then you can really start talking about these jurisdictional and, like, substantive Mm -hmm. provisions and basically, I mean, do you have a conflict? Which, I mean, if you're going to talk about these types of duties of disclosure, then you would want to say, have you taken a previous position on the FET standard that would go against our client? I mean, you could technically ask that question because A, it addresses the conflict, and B, you want to know what they're going to disclose. You don't want to point someone, and you haven't done the due diligence to find that they've spoken on something that's completely biased towards your side in a good way, for example, and then you expose them to... To challenge,
0: but I don't think it's typical good creative lawyering to say that. <laughs> if if you if you can ask about conflict, you can also ask about issue conflicts and then you can also ask about yeah. their, their positions. But the second sentence says expressly okay. that you shall not discuss any issues pertaining to jurisdictional, procedural, or substantive matters. Right.
1: That that's yeah. That would definitely be a departure from the practice, as as I have seen it, and. And even as I have practiced it, honestly. Um,
3: I mean, yeah, I'm,
0: sure. I'm happy to hear you say that because that, I think this is like something that we don't really talk about. This might actually be a good segment on its own. Like this is like a little black box that there's some sort of omerta in the field that we don't really talk about these interviews. We just... Like, Assume. For good reason, Joel. For,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> 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 Nobody wants to know what's said. No, but I mean, <laughs> something is even as simple as, hey, you know, how are you, what, what, that, what is the process of, of appointing a, a president? You know, if you're interviewing a, a potential co-arbitrator, like, do you would you consult the parties? Would you not consult the parties? Do you go by list? Do you not go by list? Like, how do you do that? Like, that's discussing the procedure.
0: Mm, I mean, come yeah.
1: on. Like, everybody does that, Right.
0: Yeah, and I think that that is based on some norm that we just trust Mm. lawyers and arbitrators to act diligently and not behave in a way that we don't want them to. Mm -hmm. And here, though, it seems that maybe the drafters, at least behind this code, feel that that kind of like implicit norm isn't enough and we need to codify something saying that you are not supposed to talk about specifics with a potential arbitrator. I don't know if that grows out of... uh, general just mistrust or, or dissatisfaction with the current system, but it feels like it's really a step away. From it just that. highlights
2: that there's definitely different ways and mechanisms people use to interview these people. And I, I agree with you. It's a total black hole that needs to be not necessarily regulated, but at least discussed if anyone's comfortable discussing it, because people's behavior change. I mean, it's also like witness preparation. It's the same thing. How much are you prepping your witness? How right. much are you prepping your expert? people don't talk about that, but Mm -hmm. there's definitely different approaches to it that can greatly affect an examination.
1: Yeah, actually there are different ethical rules, right? Yeah, like the ethical rules. That uh, you're actually bound uh, by, yeah. Yeah, Mm. Yeah, so like an American lawyer has to prep a witness, but you know, uh, English one is not allowed to, so God forbid if you're (laughs) both. (laughs) Right. what you supposed
0: to do. But do um, we have anything in any instrument regulating uh, arbitrators in this context or for that matter lawyers? In, I mean, in the pre-interview context, is there anything in any IBA rule or anything else about what you can and cannot do? Or is it a complete black hole when you're interviewing arbitrators?
2: Um I mean, I, I guess the only thing you could think of is that they have to, the arbitrator has a duty to preserve their impartiality and independence and any like mm-hmm. substantial interview would kind of compromise that or reveal some sort of bias that the party could find out.
1: Yeah, that's like a general guideline I oh, yeah. to say. But, it, but you're right, there's no, and I think that's one of the things they wanted to address maybe, this code, mm-hmm. is that, you know, the realization that they are interviews, first of all, um, and, you know, that everybody should be on the same page when they're conducting those um, because you know every i mean is there a doubt that every i mean do some people not interview arbitrators what's your experience, Joel, if you can speak about it or is it just I, that everybody does it
0: i don't really know i i I only have like anecdotal evidence not 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 first hand information at all, but I get mm-hmm. the sense that sometimes especially in commercial cases it happens that someone is appointed solely on based on the basis of their reputation or experience without any mm-hmm. interviews being conducted mm-hmm. yes mm-hmm. and and obviously when it's not the parties but an institution appointing they typically already know that person or at least know of that person and obviously an arbitration institution is not going to interview a potential chair for example they just appoint straight up when right. they have confirmed availability etc but not without going into any like, substantive interview, I think. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. We have a final thing that I want to address before we are done with the draft code, and that is in, in a field where the New York Convention is the Bible, we have to talk about enforcement, not mm-hmm. enforcement of arbitral awards, but enforcement of this code of conduct. That is sort of the, the open question. What happens if you do not follow this? And the final Article 12 says in 12.1, every adjudicator has an obligation to comply with the applicable provisions of this code. And then there's uh, something within bracket, which is other options based on means on implementation of the code. So here the buck is being passed and we have really nothing concrete saying what is to happen if adjudicators or for that matter, I guess, parties do not comply with what's in here. and. This has been expressly highlighted by the drafters that this is something we are leaving open for now. There are still of course applicable arbitration rules with the removal or challenge of arbitrators, and they will continue to apply but the, we had, i mean the in the uncentral working group, there have been suggestions about monetary sanctions and like disciplinary measures and and stuff like that to, like actually give this some teeth, although I think it's really hard in the in the present system to to make that work.
2: (laughs) Yeah. But uh, sorry, this is because I haven't read it. Is it, is it, let's say this gets enacted. um, Is it applicable to any arbitrator appointed under both of those institutional rules? They are automatically bound by this code of conduct or do the parties in PO1, for example, say, well, I guess it's already too late. So
0: yeah, this Uh, is a, this is TBD. I think for now, this is just like thoughts on a piece of paper, right? uh but it will most likely or or an an evolved version of this will most likely be included in what comes out of a trial. and it might somehow be you know some sort of like IBA rule like thing that guides procedural in uh, all manners of cases where the parties have agreed to in the arbitration agreement for example so it will be like a a soft law thing that parties and institutions can play around with i guess right
2: I guess there has to be some sort of like materiality provision on if someone hasn't disclosed anything, but it's not material to any sort of outcome of the case, whether you would then just like de facto or penalize someone monetarily, it seems a bit aggressive. Mm -hmm. Yeah,
1: but also what is the point in, you know, giving a a penalty, a monetary penalty, like is that you can buy yourself out of this? Like that's just right.
3: <laughs> Good yeah. Like yeah. Okay. <laughs>
1: so I'm just gonna pay a fine. That's care. Right. Let's right. Care. Well, I mean, what does that mean? This Unless you forfeit your the fee. issue. Yeah. I is think
0: that gonna- also like that that notion departs from some idea of arbitrators that I don't think is. Necessarily anchored in reality, arbitrators Mm -hmm. don't care about monetary stuff that much at all. Like reputational damage is so much more important to arbitrators than like having to pay ten thousand euros for Mm -hmm. something that they don't even think was wrong in the first place.
2: Well, that's that's you just what they think is wrong, and it's discretionary on the point of the arbitrators. And I know a lot of arbitrators. When we work at the SEC, for example, that you ask for certain disclosures, and they don't disclose certain things that you may see material as counsel, but they don't see a significant at all. Um, and then they say, oh, well, what about this? And I'm like, well, yeah, but I didn't think that was anything. So then you're going to penalize them based off some standard on significance.
3: Mm. Yeah,
0: still an open question very much. <laughs> <I think. laughs> Have we ripped this to shreds enough?
3: <laughs> no, no, but I, this, I
0: mean, it's the, a good effort. Absolutely. Exactly. It is what it is. This is not intended as, as a, a finalized code. This is like... Uh, a, seminar material to be discussed and improved Mm -hmm. so we we are we are doing our share bringing this to the podcast absolutely
3: yeah all right
0: let's go to more more commercial hardcore arbitration questions
1: The law governing the arbitration agreement. Why are we even talking about this?
3: I'm sure no some idea.
1: of you, some see, I knew it. Some <laughs> of you are like, what, what is she saying? What is it? So we talk about the law of deceit, right? The law of the applicable law, the governing law, the law which governs the recognition and enforcement of the award. There's, We just talked about soft law. But what is the law governing the arbitration agreement? I mean, I'm going to ask Brian because he's the (sighs) practitioner amongst us. But even, Jewel, because you see so much stuff, you know, so many contracts. Like, have you seen a contract where there is a specific provision providing what is the law governing the arbitration agreement?
2: Never. I, I have seen one contract.
1: You have? Yeah. Was it different than the law of the seat or the applicable law?
2: It was the same law as the applicable law, but different law than the law of the seat.
1: Ah, very interesting. Let's pause <laughs> here for a second. Very interesting. So there's actually a confusion in people's minds, depending on where you're from, actually, uh, what your you know background is as to if you don't, which is the majority of the case. I think I can say that with some confidence majority of the cases, you don't have an express provision governing the law of the arbitration agreement. And there's a confusion as to what that law would be. But before I go into this, why is it important, guys? What is, sorry to put you on the spot here, but what does the law of the arbitration agreement govern? Why is that even interesting to us right now?
2: Well, it's the it's the basically its own contract interpretation principles could be used towards the interpretation of signatories or um, kind of the binding obligations of the parties specifically to the con- I mean, technically the so arbitration doctrine
0: of separation, right? Yes,
2: exactly. Exactly,
1: exactly. So the heart of the ar- so the heart of arbitration is in consent, right? So the arbitration clause itself is separated from the rest ah. of the contract. So when you want to look and interpret the arbitration clause, you are going to interpret it like the contract, you're gonna look at its scope, you're gonna look at whether the, you know, the parties had capacity to arbitrate, even the notion of whether or not it was arbitrable, Um, and, you know, additional points like the availability of arbitration to third parties, um, the effect of assignment agency, succession on the agreement to arbitrate, a lot of different things. And all of this will be subject to the law of the arbitration agreement. And so, for a lot of this, and as now I'm going back to what Brian said, in your case, you had express provision that, you know, may, that said or maybe clarified that the law of the arbitration agreement was the same law as you said, the substantive law, right? Yes. Not the seed of the arbitration. So, in your case, you would look at um, the law of so, the substantive law, right? Mm-hmm. And when there's no express provision, there's been a debate, not just in their English law, but I think in multiple jurisdictions as to which law would apply. Um, and there was a big question about, and for people who have been listening to us before, there was a recent podcast on the cooked food decision. Do you guys remember you were there when I made the presentation? Yeah,
0: I, was- <laughs> I made I remember you' making a, a food fight.
1: Yeah, it was a five pun. Five That's
0: six. all I remember.
1: Exactly. Well, there was a question. I'm not going to go back to this, and you guys can listen to her post on that one previously. But there was a question that was raised what was the law, again, was the law applicable to the arbitration agreement in that case? And it's still pending before the French courts and before the English courts because they have conflicting positions on this. So the reason why we're bringing this up again is because um, there is a recent case, uh, the NCAA versus OOO insurance company, Chubb, we'll call them Chubb um, case. And so before the English courts, NCA is, just a little bit of background, is a major Turkish construction company. And since 2012, Enka was a subcontractor working on a coal-fired power plant in Russia. Uh, the general contractor was initially CGSC, which later signed the general contract to PGSC, Um, Under the subcontract, the parties agreed to resolve all disputes via ICC arbitration seated in London. So there was no express choice of law provision in the subcontract. However, there was an applicable law section, which referred specifically to Russian law. Um, In 2016, a fire broke out, a uh, power plant, sorry, not the PowerPoint. (laughs) Uh,
3: Sorry,
1: (laughs) seeing too many of those these days. Um, (laughs) And Unipro, the general contractor, received 400 million from its insurer uh-oh, which we're going to call, like I said, Chubb, uh, which was the Russian subsidiary of the U.S. company. So following the payout in September 2009, Chubb commenced proceedings at the Moscow Arbitraz court, sorry, seeking compensation from Enka and 10 others. And Chubb claimed NCA's low-quality work was responsible for the fire and sought recovery of the sums paid out to Unipro. Now, in response to Chubb's lawsuit in Russian courts, Enca, of course, initiated proceedings in London, but not arbitration proceedings. Enca requested went before the UK court and requested the High Court of Justice to issue an anti-suit injunction prohibiting Chubb Russia and its international affiliates from pursuing those proceedings any further. So the central question for the high court was whether the arbitration clause in the subcontract applied to the dispute. But in order to answer this question, the court first had to determine what law governed the arbitration agreement. So here, Russian law or English law. And it was an interesting one because under English law, the arbitration clause would have covered the dispute between Chubb and Enka. But under Russian law, not so clear. <laughs> so, of course, Anka argued that the choice of, of London as a seat gave the high court an a priori superior claim to determine the scope of the clause, regardless of applicable law. And I'm saying, um, of course, but it's not, of course, at all. Of course, you know, I mean, it, it's not as clear as that that they would have argued that. But in their case, that was the reason why, because the seat was London. Chubb, on the other hand, asked the court to leave the determination of applicable law to the Russian court. Um, So first, there was Justice Baker. It held that the designation of London as the location of the arbitration did not amount to an agreement that the law governing the arbitration agreement was English law. He actually found that, and here I quote, The choice of seat, he found, perhaps may be taken to indicate a preference for the English court to be the court that gets involved if any municipal court ever has to get involved to assist the arbitral process during its life. But for my part, I do not think, even read in isolation, let alone when read as part of its immediate context, so the whole of the arbitration clause in the contract, let alone further when read as part of reading the contract as a whole, that choice of seat is any real indication of a choice of English law to govern the arbitration agreement in this case.
3: <laughs> so
1: that was Judge of the High Court Justice. Um, it further held that the determination of governing law was not for the courts of England, but rather for the arbitrators. It said, were the court to exercise its power to grant an anti- injunction, it would not be an exercise of power as arbitral supervisory court, but rather an exercise of original substantive jurisdiction to restrain by injunction a breach or threatened breach of contract by a party over whom, whom it has a personal jurisdiction that it is right to consider exercising. Um, so he said, you know, the obvious course of action for NCAP would have been to commence arbitration proceedings. Um, and the fact that they didn't do so um, it show it was a significant factor, telling against their claim for the discretionary relief they they sought. Um, but as no arbitral tribunal had yet been established, uh, the judge held that the proper body to determine the scope of the arbitration clause was the Moscow Arbitrats Court, already seized of the matter on forum non convenience ground. So, as you guys mm. can imagine, this went to the court of appeal. <laughs>
0: many interesting (laughs) sub issues here it's like like a hopscotch of reasoning
1: (laughs) yeah it's really interesting and i'm going to try to not go into the anti-suit injunction point too much because that is also a very interesting point and just talk about in passing because we're going to focus on the applicable law but in essence went to the court of appeal Enca appealed arguing that the high court erred in principle by declining to consider the antecedent injunction on foreign non-convenience grounds, as England was the seat of arbitration. And so foreign non-convenience does not arise or is automatically answered in favor of England. That was the first argument. Secondly, that the high court ought to have found English law governed the arbitration clause. Um, and even if the high court found Russian law governed the arbitration clause, the high court ought to have applied Russian law to determine the scope of the clause, so not dismiss the claim. And in any case, fortly, if the arbitration clause covered the dispute, whether under English or Russian law, that an anti-suit injunction should have been granted. And the Court of Appeal, surprise, surprise, granted the appeal. Um, So on the question of the seat of arbitration, the Court of Appeal found that the High Court had er erred in failing to appreciate properly the implication of English status as a seat of arbitration. So that was the discussion on the anti-suit injunction. So I'm going to skip on that. interestingly what they had said on the proper law of the arbitration agreement was that it first considered whether or not there was an express provision they said there was no express provision and here i'm just going to pause for one second the difference with the court ford case is that in there the seat was paris and the uh, substantive law was english law and uh the court determined that uh the law uh applicable to the arbitration agreement was English law, uh, even though the seat of arbitration was Paris, but that was because they had determined that there was an express law provision because the law of the arbitration agreement fell under a clause that, that referred to the arbitration agreement under applicable law. So in a way it would be consistent with that case. Um, so first um, here, it, it mentioned again, the English choice of law rules, that are used to interpret an arbitration agreement under English law, and it referred to a case called Sulamerica. And so we check if there's an express choice of law. If not, we look for an implied choice of law. And thirdly, if no implied choice of law with that system of law, um, then it looks at the closest and more real connection test, right? Uh, that's not really clear, though, because the most uh, closest and most real connection place, some would argue, is the substantive law. Some would argue is the seat of arbitration, right? So yes. I wouldn't find that very clear. Um, and in essence, what it mentioned was that if, unless there is a reason to the contrary, um, the general rule should be that the arbitration agreement law is the curial law, so the seat, the law of the seat as a matter of implied choice subject only to any particular features of the case demonstrating powerful reasons to the contrary
0: oh this is i was really upset when we were in the first instance uh, <laughs> talking about that now <laughs> Do you i feel, feel, feel now? yeah, yeah. <laughs> this this reflects not only my opinion but also the swedish law position i think pretty accurately yes, and I, I i feel very absolutely. comfortable and i think it's very to me it's completely uncontroversial that if there's no other indication The law of the arbitration agreement is the law of the seat and the law of the seat is so clearly tied to the scope of the arbitration agreement and the arbitration proceedings in a way that the law governing the substance isn't necessary.
1: You're absolutely right, Jill. This is exactly uh, the reasoning behind this. They grounded this general rule in the separability of the arbitration clause and the principle of party autonomy. Where the seat is different from the substantive law, the parties have, according to court, in principle already chosen a separate body of law to govern the conduct of the arbitral proceeding. And so I'm going to quote here. Um, the arbitration agreement is treated as separate and severable for the purposes of this choice of curial law about which the main contract law has nothing to say. Why then should it have anything to say about the closely related aspect of the very same arbitration agreement? In other words, because parties are to be treated or having contracted on the basis that the main contract and the arbitration clause are separate and distant agreements for the purposes of the latter's validity, existence and effectiveness. So they should be taken as having contracted on the same basis in respect of the governing law of the arbitration agreement, which determines its validity, existence and effectiveness. Um, So Jewel, your gut feeling was the gut feeling of the appeal court (laughs) as well in this case now why why are we talking about this i think it's important also because to mention that english um cases have not been clear on this at all they even acknowledge it themselves in this decision it's been very unclear so far even though it's such a important question um in the community as well and brian correct me if you're wrong but when i've been talking to some of my colleagues before this set of cases, they always thought, well, yeah, we never mentioned uh, expressly what the arbitration, what the law governing the arbitration agreement should be, because it's understood that it would be the law of the seat, like Jule would say, and some other would say, no, 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 it's understood that it's the substantive law of the contract, right? And now there's a huge call of, you know, practitioners saying, oh, okay, now you, to avoid any problem, let's just mention it in the contracts. Exactly. let's just make it clear what the law of the arbitration agreement is right and to go back on your point on sweden you're absolutely right um i mean of course you're right because you're swedish so you know more than i do
2: i've noticed <laughs> <some> wrong i've <laughs> noticed wrong opinions from swedish people
0: at swedish law. So. <laughs> the
1: the, the, the
0: bank case the first seminar in the course in international commercial arbitration in sweden that's true
1: Right okay, so so tell us tell us what is the Swedish position then so it's the same is the same under Swedish law right
0: yeah basically the yeah. the the arbitration clause is governed by the law of the seats if there's no explicit choice of law basically
1: okay, well in India, it's the opposite, for example, um just to Wrong. give an example of something else uh where there and I quote here. Um, The Indian Supreme Court has held that where the proper law of the contract is expressly chosen by the parties, such law must, in the absence of an unmistakable, sorry, (laughs) intention to the contrary, I can't speak, govern the arbitration agreement, which, uh, though collateral or ancillary to the main contract, is nevertheless a part of such contract. Um, That was the National Terminal Power Court versus Singer Co. case. Uh, In the U.S a third restatement of international commercial arbitration. It's also said that it's the substantive law that would be applicable. But in practice, U.S. jurisprudence diverged uh, from this practice. And interestingly, under French law, they don't even refer... (laughs) Notice the
2: emphasis (laughs) for French law.
1: (laughs) No, I'm just pausing because it's interesting. I mean, for me as a French person, of course, I consider this normal. But the French are like... We're not going to apply like national law. This is like uh, our international, you know, law thing to determine wh- which is the law governing the arbitration agreement. So it's international law giving effect. International law will give effect to the intention of the parties. So in Dalico, which is the case always mentioned, the court of cassation held that the existence and validity of the arbitration clause depends only on the common intention of the parties. Without being necessary to make reference to any national law.
0: Oh, this is such a turtleneck chain smoking approach. We don't need we don't need rules. Right, exactly. (laughs) Fuck the rules. What did you mean? (laughs) What is life anyway?
1: With a what is you know, an but,
0: arbitration <laughs>
3: agreement? Uh,
1: we're going to look at the intention of the parties. There's no national law applicable. Not French law, English law, no law. International law. Um, so that's that's it, you know. And uh, I mean, of course, you know, authors have observed that the explicit purpose of the choice of law analysis adopted by international arbitral tribunals has been to minimize the effect of national laws that restrict the party's autonomy to enter into international arbitration agreements and to facilitate the enforceability of such agreements. Right? This I quoted from Monsieur Gariborna, who's not French. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, I think it's still an important um, important case. I think it's, it's good that the English courts have clarified their position. Um, I'm still interested to see what's going to be the French court's um, decision on the Kutford case on that point and it would be nice to have some uniform uh, uniformity on this as well and not inconsistent decisions so people know. Because I don't think, and this is from a commercial perspective, My client, I mean, first of all, you have to explain the seat of arbitration, (laughs) the difference between the seat of arbitration and the governing law to people who are not conversant in arbitration. That's the first thing that you need to explain to them. And they they don't, commercial parties don't know that if you don't specify what law is going to be applicable to the arbitration agreement, that they're going to have to face so much, you know, um, uncertainty in the courts as to which law is going to be applicable. I don't think they ever thought about this. So, no. we do need much more clarity on this point.
2: well, especially if you talk about the construction of the contract, which I know it, you know, if you're trying to make creative arguments on why a certain a different law should apply, the construction of the contract will be very, very telling on how you can construct your arguments to on either side. So, whether the applicable law is in its own separate provision, if the applicable law or the governing law provision is within yes. the dispute resolution clause, you can really start making arguments that the intention of the parties was to have that governing law apply also to the um, to the arbitration agreement. Although on principle, there's jurisdictions that say that's absolutely not the case. Mm-hmm. You can argue. I mean, you could definitely argue it. But then, I mean, it's a class we had in the case that I had that I talked to you guys about. We had a huge fight on like choice of law classification clause, like classification rules within jurisdictions, because even to get to the rule, you should apply to interpret. Like you're saying the U.S. law has determined this. How do you determine that it's U.S. law to apply on the policy on interpreting when the governing law uh, should cover the arbitration agreement or not? So there's That's why like...
1: the French
2: say. <laughs> 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 Just skip the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. exactly.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, this is it, guys. And I'll keep you posted on any other developments on this.
0: Great
2: segue, Sari.
0: I actually, as you saw, but not the listeners, I made myself a drink right about the time when I was vindicated by the Court of Appeal in London. <laughs> <laughs> now we can move on to Happy Fun Time officially.
2: So as Joel said, he prepared a drink. it is time for the happy fun time topic and rounding out this episode to discuss. We, there was a lot of discussion on arbitrators, so why don't we talk about how to become an arbitrator? I don't think just like how to become partner, there's no linear way to get there. Um, <laughs> and people have found their way there prematurely and they've found their way there way too late because they don't know how to break into the market. So maybe we get to shed some light. Joel and I used to work at an institution.
0: Yes. I'm raising my hand.
2: When, can
1: I? raise your hand for which one?
0: No, I've, I wanna, I want to I want to pose a question first, a preliminary oh, okay. question, which is slightly related but also not on point and not about uh, how to become an arbitrator, but whether you want to become an arbitrator, which I think is something we must address too. It's a little bit like working in politics and getting the question, do you want to run for office someday? <laughs> and you have like you know there are two two potential avenues you can take. Either you have like open Yes. Oh, I would love to, you know, b- become a member of Congress or run for mayor or whatever. And that's my my end goal, and that's why I'm in politics. I want to change things, and that's what I want to do. Or you have the other, like, oh, I don't know, I'm doing what I'm doing right now, and I have no plans to ever run for office. Let's take that if it shows up. But of course, typically you want to do it anyway. You just like want to be play, play coy and not. show all your cards immediately. And I think it's kind of the same in the arbitration community. Like almost everyone who works in arbitration must at some point have thought about the prospect of becoming an arbitrator. But you have this whole spectrum from people who work towards that goal from the day they enter law school and people who are like, ah, maybe if it happens and someone appoints me, I will consider it. But that's not why I'm in this. Right
1: really you think there are some people who right after law school think they want to become an arbitrator and work their way towards that really?
0: i've, I've had like yeah i'm oh. raising his hand yeah i've had <laughs> a, a large number of students say that like uh the day one oh, of the right. okay. uh, program like i want to become an arbitrator how do i oh. become an arbitrator okay okay I I, I, yeah i don't think it was like <clears throat> how do i
2: like skip all the experience required to be a good arbitrator and then become an arbitrator immediately but it's definitely, I just saw it as like the most amazing retirement plan ever embedded into an industry of professionals ever invented.
1: <laughs> yeah. I mean, we're not clearly not going to get retirement. Wherever you live in the world yeah. anymore, they're taking away our right to retirement. Um, so, yeah, we got to plan accordingly, right? <laughs>
0: what, what, what's your position, Sadia? What is your standard response?
1: <clears throat> My standard response is um, to whether I, um, whether I would want to become an arbitrator. Yeah. Well, the, I, uh, I was asking you the question to that question because I didn't think out of law school, um, I didn't say to myself, well, oh, I want to become an arbitrator. There was a time where I had to make a decision as to whether or not in France you go to a special school if you want to be a judge. Mm. Um, So, from early on, uh, like, I think after three years in law school, you go to a special school called the Ecole Normale de Magistrature, ONM, Ecole Nationale de Magistrature. So, so people who want to become judge have a separate training and they become judges, etc. In arbitration, I I really wanted to be, you know, counsel um, in arbitration um, when I started arbitration. I wanted to be involved in the cases. And the more and more I did them... Then I realized, yeah, of course, it would be really interesting to be an arbitrator as as well. So I think the the response is similar to Brian's um, in that I acknowledge that, you know, you need to have, um, you know, some kind of, you know, relevant experience and know the cases and have practice before you can become an arbitrator. But now that you hear all these discourses about you can't double hat anymore, (laughs) you can't be an arbitrator and counsel (laughs) at the same time, I guess. We have to make a decision, right, um, as to whether we yeah. want to be an arbitrator or not. Um, but, but I mean, in fact, I don't think we have to make a decision because you still need experience to become an arbitrator. There is no way um, that you can become, especially in investment arbitration, an arbitrator. Without having practiced at all ever, no. But the I first mean, might like, be.
0: typically the first your first like commercial appointments come when you are basically at the career stage that that we yes. are at right yeah, now. That's so it, true. it's not it's not as abstract of a question.
1: As no, it might no, no, no. It's true. It's true, and it's happening. You know, I'm getting some um, appointment. I haven't. Um, I had some conflicts um, issues there, and and I couldn't really. Uh, sit as an arbitrator per se but it's you know this is, this is the time this is the time you're right this is this is happening right people are are like okay we're looking for um you know new arbitrators etc and and i do think it's extremely valuable and yes yeah i think um i I mean brian is that also your view jokes aside like do you really want to um sit as an arbitrator do you think full-time later on or do you want to do both
2: yeah i mean like Inshallah, right? Like, God, God uh, and no, the I'm,
1: Jewish person said, right? inshallah during Ramadan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's but it is it's such a long road, especially if you look at like the SCC, for example, where your first case will always be a sole arbitration appointment at a very low level, and you're getting paid nothing, and it's going to be a lot of work because you need to prove yourself. So. To the idea that I want to be an arbitrator and sit as an arbitrator full time is such a far distant goal mm-hmm. because there's such a long way to get there. Um, to be known on the market as a good arbitrator, known within institutions to be a good arbitrator, be appointed amongst several institutions. I mean, I I know people that are, you know, five, six year partners and still trying to get on, you know, lists and unofficial lists of institutions. Mm-hmm, and it, mm-hmm. It's really difficult. And there's no glamour in it at all, because especially at that stage, you're. Not sitting in like an open YouTube broadcast exit arbitration, you're sitting in a small little hotel room. No one knows the parties. no one knows you. You mm-hmm. earn no money because it goes straight to your firm and you've just done extra work that's not billable for for the firm. So why are you <laughs> why are you doing this?
1: <laughs> Actually, Bye. that's a really good point. Uh, sorry to cut you off, but but it's uh, there's some firms that actively discourage yes their associates yeah. or partners from sitting that as hurts. arbitrators because doesn't bring money. And creates conflict, right? Exactly,
2: exactly. Mm. Um, But I was saying, I, I the beauty in being an arbitrator is to sit on the other side of the table, and I think as secretary, that's one of the biggest benefits that Mm -hmm. I like from that experience. And Mm -hmm. I know sitting in multiple like discussions with clients. They always ask the partner that has had experience as an arbitrator, as an arbitrator, how would you decide this case? Mm-hmm. And it, as a client, it's really, really helpful or they find it very helpful, even though like it's all discretionary at the end of the day and you can't really predict like universally what's to be decided. But it's very helpful to say to the client, you know, I've had a case like this before. I've like, you know, this people I've been in I've been in um, deliberations before. This is how people think this is splitting the baby, all of this stuff. It gives you an insight into an entirely different way of thinking. That's not. Advocate advocate, advocate,
1: yeah, yeah, I agree, and even and acting um, you know, like you just to to jump on the point of uh, of sitting as a secretary, and this is what you're doing, Jill now, um it's such great training, right? to uh, you yeah. know to even become counsel. I think even as I was I was a junior associate, my first first one of my very first assignments was sitting as a secretary to um an arbitrator, and I was reading both parties' pleadings. And it was just eye-opening for me, you know, how to draft, how not to draft, how not to piss an arbitrator, yeah. you know, um, yeah. different techniques, you know, to convince. Um, and then seeing the training.
0: arbitrators deliberate as well. Like yes, see yes. That, that, that speaking of a black box. Like the the deliberative yeah. process between arbitrators is really something that the the only way you can get inside is basically to be an arbitrator yourself or maybe right. to be a secretary.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, yeah, exactly. And so, oh. Sadia,
2: how? Do, like you said, you were contacted before. How was that? Done. I mean, in a general sense,
1: uh, find honestly, your name somewhere. Complete, no, completely. Like I've tried to pick up, like to be on lists and stuff, which I am to some of of the institutions. Um, I in in uh, different ones, different regional ones, the big ones, um, and it's not them who contacted me. It's one that I didn't even um, do anything actively to. It was the LCIA actually uh, arbitration, so I didn't um, you know send a resume per se or something. Um, and I was contacted, uh, from the institution on an arbitration, but, um, Oh, you were contacted, contacted by the institution? Yeah, by the institution, okay. yeah, by the institution. So, but there's no like list thing no. per se, um, there where some other institutions you have to be mm. on a list to be contacted by the institution. Right. Um, but I've heard that the first appointments, um, more, uh, the percentage of your first appointments usually come... The, the, it, it's it's a higher probability that it comes from the institution itself rather than a party appointed yeah. nomination yeah. Um, but see I think that's 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 new to our generation. I think if you ask our 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 mentors or our bosses how they got their first appointments, yeah, I would think that they got appointed from uh, their peers or you know, colleagues
2: or something yeah. like that, if clients.
1: I'm not mistaken, yeah, or clients, well, yeah.
2: Well, exactly. I think some of, there's some ICSA tribunal or arbitrators that have started as party appointed arbitrators and then the system mm-hmm. kind of sees their competence and it propels them. But um, I know, like, from working at the SEC, for example, you get resumes and it's basically a PR, like, you know, whistle-stop tour that you have to contact the institutions show them your resume and again if they don't have a list just to keep me on file um, mm-hmm. and the the institution will do that but i again as you say you can be on a list for years and not be contacted unless you mm-hmm. have some sort of like re- relevance it's it's the same thing like getting a job like I, they don't give me a job cuz i'm not experienced enough but i need experience
1: to get yeah.
2: a job to get experience so it's a bit chicken and the egg
1: I think there are a lot of people changing this, though, within institutions. So whether it's the ICC or the LCIA or even other ones, uh, where people are, you know, ma- taking a stand and say, we you need," because they have so many cases where the amount of dispute is so low. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, like you mentioned earlier, I think we were making a joke about this, but it's true. You don't make money by becoming <laughs> an arbitrator, especially at the early stages of your career. Um, quite the opposite. Um, so you're not going to have like Emmanuel Gaia, you know, except to sit uh, as an arbitrator on a on an ICC case that has 1 million in dispute or something. I mean, I, no. I, I don't, no. I don't, I mean, who maybe. knows maybe he's gonna call in and say, why do that, but I'm just like, so they, there's plenty of young, um, you know, arbitrators out there, uh, practitioners that would, that would really do, I think and a really academics. good job.
0: And, and, and academics.
1: academics, yes, sorry. Yes, of course, academics as well, of course. Um, but you're to, right. You know.
0: Obviously, the, the the institutions have an interest in in broadening the pool, so to speak, that mm-hmm. the parties mm-hmm. do not have typically. Because then mm-hmm. so you can mm-hmm. count on the institutions to work more actively to expanding the potential people.
2: So the SEC, for example, and not to like really promote them, <laughs> um, but they have a um, educ like a I'm reading the Swedish so they have like an education course that you can do for. Um, mm. To be, to basically, it's like arbitrator skills. So it's twelve courses on Swedish and international arbitration law, um, with experience in Swedish and international arbitrations, um, and that I think is. And then you get taught by experienced um, arbitrators in the Swedish community, um, and I think that's a great initiative that the SEC does to kind of say, "Are you interested in being an arbitrator? Here's a first step without getting appointed." To actually learn the skills, and then if you come out with some sort of certificate or whatever you get, they know that at least you have some sort of like toolkit to use if you are appointed for,
0: as a as a first-time arbitrator. Do you feel okay. like you are good enough to be an arbitrator? <laughs>
1: ah! What is that? Is that a leading question?
0: No, no, no that's a, that's a, that's a, uh, a rare moment of true sincerity in mm. France. I uh, This is a bit of a cop-out answer, but it's
2: I think it depends on how you approach being an arbitrator. I know some arbitrators, their approach is I'm only going to decide on the arguments, le- like legal mm-hmm. arguments and factual arguments that are presented to me. And if you take that approach, I think it's much easier because the you know your intellectual curiosity will not lead you in the wrong direction yeah, or you're own to... you're only as good as the parties are basically well yeah, yeah. And so that's one approach another approach is like finding justice capital J justice in which case you're gonna kind of take a more active role do your own independent research perhaps and kind of like be an engaging arbitrator asking questions during examinations when you're given an opportunity to do so in which case it's very it's much more difficult of a task because you need to be completely read up on the case better than counsel really
1: well in fact you know that's that's the irony of this whole thing is a lot of the cases where there's a you know amount of disputes that's very low what happens is they're not you know because the amount of dispute is so low they um you know below a million dollars or around you know it could be $10,000 in cases $10,000 ICC arbitrations mm-hmm. they'd not properly represent i mean they are represented i can't say they're not properly represented what i mean is it's not going to be sherman versus you know um, fresh, fresh beer or rg versus, versus winston you know it's not going to be that <laughs> um, it would it would be it it would be something else and so you would actually have to work much more
3: yeah. as an
1: arbitrator to get you know the the questions of law lot of the parties, et cetera, raise the right questions. And
2: I had um, <clears throat> someone who was appointed for the first time as a co-arbitrator in the Czech arbitration institution. Mm-hmm. Um, and they had, it was a very, very small dispute. And they had um, one, this person who was appointed as the co-arbitrator was the only one that was actually an arbitration practitioner. The other two were district court judges in Dubrovnik. And they had a question on the language of the arbitration. And they had a hearing on it that it turned into something much bigger, and I think that was in like give just to give like credit to this you know first time arbitrator to actually raise this as a true issue and to really like hear it out because they think that it could disadvantage one of the parties um mm-hmm. and that was something that needed to be like adequately considered and I think like Am I at I, I don't know if I would have had that like idea as or that a profound like deep dive as this person did. So and I think it takes experience.
1: Yeah, but you're ready, Brian. I think, you know, I mean really. I mean it, you just need to have you know, but you need to start. You know, and you've acted as you, you worked in an institution before and we've we've all been secretaries to, to tribunals and and I think, I don't know what the magic number is. I don't know how many right. years you have to have practice before you're good enough because maybe you've worked for 11 years and you've been working on the same case for 11 years in the same yeah. section, yeah. On the same case. And so, yeah. no, then I would say you're not ready. Yeah, but exactly. if you've seen different cases, a variety of cases, and, you know, um, then, and, and, and like you said, people are going to look for specific criteria. Maybe either it's your nationality or your regional expertise or maybe what you have published
3: <laughs> yeah,
1: or <laughs> what you've spoken about apparently, since you have to disclose that now, which um, is how
2: academics gets considered, isn't it, Joel?
1: Yes, exactly. Yeah, typically,
0: I guess I am not an academic anymore, though. For the reason. all right.
1: <laughs> so your choice is is the jewel. Is that the career path for you now?
0: Well, honestly, this is not uh, trying to be cute, but I've honestly always had the <laughs> approach that that a. There is no need for more Western European white men in this business. And B, I am not... Okay, now Brian left. (laughs) (laughs)
3: I'm out. I'm out.
0: And and B, I am not just personally a good enough lawyer to actually work full-time or even part-time as an arbitrator. But that being said, now that I've seen more and more arbitrations, I'm also realizing that not all arbitrators are very good lawyers actually i think i may have put a lot of people on a pedestal on which they do not mm-hmm. belong so i am slowly reconsidering that they say that, never meet your heroes yes exactly <laughs> <laughs> no and i agree so with you. Th- that being said it's it's not my career goal at all but my standard answer up until like a year ago was always like it's not for me i think the world of arbitration needs other people better lawyers different kinds of lawyers than the Western European white man, male perspective that I represent. Mm-hmm. Now I'm slowly changing that. The more I see people, all the kinds of arbitrators who aren't necessarily as good as you would expect. And I'm realizing that yeah, if you do a good enough job, maybe it will work out anyway. Right. Yeah, but
1: It's interesting how you define yourself as, and I'm going to be the advocate jab here, but as the white male, you know, Arbitrary, you're so much more than just a white male, too. I mean, diversity is not about just, you know, no, but but it's
0: it's, it's the other leg, too. It's not just that. It's also, I'm not just a white male, Western European. I'm also a so so lawyer, white male, Western European. And that is like the definition of who's in the world. I am (laughs) Swedish humbleness.
1: Yeah, Yeah. here we go.
0: Uh, (laughs) All right. (laughs) Uh, if I if I were a, a super hardworking yeah. person, I, this would not have been a concern. But I think this business, and I think you two agree as well, if you think about it, is flooded by mm-hmm. entitled men who aren't as well-prepared and as gifted and hardworking as they should be. And I'm afraid I might belong to that category. And I think that's what we need to get rid of. And we need hardworking people with different perspectives.
1: I think, I think that's the key word, hardworking, right? I mean, I'm oh, sorry, Brian, you were going to say something.
0: No, no, no. I think,
2: uh, I, Joel, I think you, when you have a client breathing down your neck, and it's a very different motivation, and I think it's a similar motivation than when you're being a, dis- a decision maker in front of your peers, and you want to do it right, I think you're going to be much more motivated to read the record and, like, be very, very well read on on the situation. And I don't know if you've had that, like, ah, like, pressure.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think so, yeah. not no, 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 judging from the intensity of your body language. <laughs> no, I. Um, but I think
2: Sadi is right. I mean, if, just to go back to the topic before we sign off, Like to, to become an arbitrator, I think to, to get a competitive advantage, it's going to be much more, it's based off your nationality, your language, your competence, um, being, becoming like an expert in a specific type of arbitration, um, like energy or whatever, will get will really increase your chances to be appointed in in that type of field. And I remember when I got my citizen, my Swedish citizenship. Joel said, "Like, well, there goes your Swedish appointments because I couldn't be like the international like person appointed for cases in the SEC." But
0: um, yeah, I, but there is. No- you still might think now. I think by moving from Sweden, you made a, the right move. Now you are yeah. someone who is based in London and speaks Swedish without being one hundred percent Swedish. That's a right. good. I will spot put that in my pitch. Uh, okay, so so to summarize, Brian. You are open for business, and you're American <laughs> and want to become an arbitrator. I have fake, <laughs> fake Swedish humility, trying to turn it down. There we go. In order to get it. And Sadia is about to become an arbitrator very soon, anyway, so he yeah. doesn't have this problem. Who yet. knows? It's French.
1: It's French. <laughs> uh, well, cross uh, so fingers.
2: Sorry, you have to quarantine. Um, it would have been nice to see you in person, but I'll deal with a. I'll settle for a video call. This is really nice. <laughs> Good to see that you're healthy.
1: Yeah, Jill is enjoying his drink live. We can see it.
2: <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> um, all right, nice. guys. Until next time. Thank you.
1: Until next time, bye guys.
0: Bye.